Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm very happy to be back with you recording. Uh, this is actually our part two episode on the B-29 Super Fortress. Uh, you guys may remember I talked about this aircraft last week uh, on dock, actually, which was a B-29 that was restored to uh, flight five, five years ago. Uh, everybody, this is a another B-29 I'm going to be discussing today, and it is called Fifi. Fifi is a B-29 used by the Commemorative Air Force. Uh, our special guest, Alan Benzing, is going to talk about this wonderful, wonderful aircraft. Uh, we, he is from the Commemorative Air Force, and uh, we will uh, play the interview right now, and we'll talk to you on the backhand. Hope you enjoy it. effort to bring one out of the desert. So he spent a lot of time, a lot of his own money, uh, to bring this particular aircraft out. So rather than just uh, put his money on the line, he bought the aircraft for his wife, so to speak. Uh, his wife's nickname was Fifi, and uh, this aircraft's been known as Fifi ever since. And uh, thousands of people around the country and around the world know her as such. And it's our job to take care of this aircraft and uh, keep her flying, so I'd like to take you on a tour of this aircraft so you may uh, enjoy and appreciate her as well. As we look at the nose gear, we have a large mechanism here that uh, from all appearances would be steering mechanism, but it is not. This is a freeze-swiveling nose gear. This is merely a shimmy damper. So we have no nose wheel steering. We're dependent on strategic use of power and tactically use of brakes to taxi the aircraft and for takeoff and landing. Uh, right above us is the bombardier's position. We can see the Norton bomb site. Uh, and just to my left of that is another complicated piece of equipment, which is actually the gun site. So during uh, the portion of the flight where fighters may be a, a more important issue, they can swing that gun sight forward and use it, and if they have control of the guns, depending on the primary fire control, they can then shoot the bottom and or top turret. Uh, we're standing in front of one of the engines and propellers. It's about an 18-foot propeller. It's, uh, this is a Wright 3350, 2200 horsepower, 18-cylinder engine, and is... Uh, what we call a hybrid engine, although hybrid really means to us a different version of a 3350. The original engines had a great deal of difficulty with overheating, cylinder head temperatures and so on. These have been modified by going to a later design so that the exhaust is now out the aft portion of the engine for the forward cylinders, allowing a much cooler 
and very much more dependable engine. We can see from the side of the engine what looks to be uh, turbocharger exit and so on, but the fact is that we've long since removed the turbochargers to allow a simpler operation and less uh, expensive operation. We do not pressurize the aircraft, we do not fly it at high altitude, so the pressurization and the turbocharging is not necessary. Take a look at the uh, landing gear. What's interesting to me is that the gear is the same gear that's on the B-17 and the B-24, except we have dual wheels on the B-29. And of course, you can see the components inside. It's electrically operated on this aircraft. Take you into the forward bomb bay, which is opened on the ground simply by opening this latch. See the large mirror doors, or bomb bay doors. We have some additional equipment, basically ladders in here, but you can see the bombs, replica bombs. You can see the center wing tank, which has been modified to be used as an oil tank. And basically have a uh, 90 degree, excuse me, a 90 gallon oil tank on each engine. So once you land and want to service the, uh, the oil, you'll find it much easier to pump it out of a center tank rather than drag oil jugs up to the top. There we can see the tunnel going between the pressurized sections. So it's a very interesting design and it works very well. And there's an example of the bulkhead that has the door closed, pressure bulkhead. These are replica seven, excuse me, 500 pound bombs. Each bomb bay could carry up to 10,000 pounds. Uh, actually, the atomic bombs are a little bit over 10,000 pounds. And the other bomb bay could also have bombs, or in many cases, they carry an auxiliary fuel tank to extend the range. Uh, aircraft will generally carry a little over 5,500 gallons of fuel, but with uh, extra tanks, of course, you can extend the range. Fuel burn is 400 gallons per hour. Lots of cables uh, for the controls wiring and so forth uh, in this unpressurized area. Shop price drop alerts all over the store and save up to 20%. Like this Lane sofa with all five throw pillows. It was $747, but now price dropped to just $598. You'll find these 20 off price drop alert tags all over the store. Save now at Mathis Brothers. bring to the table. There's no place like Wayfair. If we turn around and look forward, we can see the mechanism. These look like hydraulic cylinders, but they are pneumatic. These doors will open in about a second and a half if properly charged. We can also see, just by looking forward slightly, here is the forward lower turret. Again, that can be controlled by the primary fire control sitting in the back, or it can be controlled by the bombardier who also has a gun sight and can act as a gunner.
We're now looking at the exterior uh, aft section of the B-29 Superfortress. We can see the bubble on the side of the aircraft where the side gunners would have a gun sight and the ability to control top or bottom turret if they were given that control by the gentleman at the very top bubble who was the primary flight control. So it was via an analog computer and some switching mechanism, uh, a very effective system of switching control of the different gunners and different gun sites. And the main uh, advantage, of course, was no one was ever in a gun turret, making that a much safer and, uh, and really a, a better crew position, uh, less exhausting. We look uh, to the tail of the aircraft. We'll notice a few things. First of all, the rudder is somewhat of an unusual design. There's a fairly abrupt change in the rudder as it goes into the hinge area and a relatively small rudder, for that matter, uh, for an aircraft this size. So there's some aerodynamic features there I'm not all that familiar with, but it does work pretty well to have that small of a rudder, uh, even if you have two engines out on one side on this aircraft, providing you have enough speed. Uh, the A on the tail stands for Agather. Uh, Niels Agather is our current squadron commander, and he is the son of Victor Agather, uh, Victor Agather had a great deal to do with B-29s during World War II in getting them out of production and into uh, the battle zone, even though they had many, many teething pains. And uh, he was instrumental, really, in having these aircraft be useful in, in, during the war. After the war, he was instrumental in getting this particular aircraft out of the desert, both in his connections in Washington, uh, getting approvals and putting his own money on the line to get this aircraft out of the desert. So in honor of the Agather family, we have the A on the tail of the aircraft. We're now looking at the aft crew entrance door uh, and a rudimentary ladder. That's also, of course, an exit if you need it. And that was used during the wartime and it's used today as we bring passengers aboard the aircraft uh, to help support this aircraft through ride flights and touring is really what supports this aircraft and keeps it flying. As you move further back, we have the lower turret, lower aft turret, which again is controlled by primary flight control or one of the side gunners. We have a tail skid. Various uh, large aircraft with tail skids, some don't. It depends a great deal on how prone they are to uh, suffering a tail strike in an unusual circumstance. This aircraft is quite long, it's 99 feet long. In a normal landing, uh, it's not at great risk, but if there's anything abnormal about it, or perhaps a no-flap landing, you're quite likely to uh, touch the tail if you don't have a tail skid to touch first. If we go further back, we have the twin 50s, which are in the tail gun position. The tail gunner is essentially autonomous, although in the right situation, if he were disabled, for example, primary fire control could fire those guns as well. Uh, there's always questions about configurations and so on, and they do vary. There are some B-29s out there that had a 20-millimeter cannon on it. Uh, as you research and, and talk to different people, you get different stories about what capabilities are, and I think the real answer is it depended 
on when it was and what they were uh, trying to do with the aircraft as to how it was configured. As we come around to the other side of the tail gun position, you can see an escape door. Uh, he was up there by himself in his own small pressurized area, but he did have a way of getting out. Uh, you can also see a bit of his gun sight. So although he was back there supposedly with the guns, his guns were also remotely controlled. He looked through a gun sight, pulled the trigger, and the guns below him were remotely controlled. I'll mention also that the control surfaces, even on such a large and fast aircraft as a B-29, are fabric covered. So here we see the elevator being fabric covered just as they are in the B-17s, uh, C-47s, uh, B-24. They were strong enough, light, and less expensive uh, to do it that way, and as long as it worked, that uh, is what they used. So we carry forward with that today. On the other side of the aircraft, we do see some insignia. These are either bomb groups that were important to the effort, uh, and uh, organizations that helped us along the way, either painting the aircraft or helping us in its restoration. I would also point out the area with the red circle around it, which is the exhaust for the APU or putt-putt that we saw in the back of the aircraft. As those of you who have uh, seen the aircraft up close may notice, uh, each of the engines has a name that represents uh, uh, wartime, in this case, Mitzi. Uh, we also have uh, Ingrid, Betty, and Rita. So those stand for uh, Ingrid Bergman, Mitzi Gaynor, uh, Rita Hayworth, and Betty Grable. And uh, when we're looking uh, for replacing engines, I hope you keep those in mind. <laughs> we do need support from time to time, in fact, all the time, to keep these engines running. As uh, we look now into the wheel well of the forward, uh, for the forward gear, we can see the bulkheads and uh, mechanisms and so on. Uh, we have a device here that allows us to release the clutch for the gear retraction uh, to allow emergency uh, retraction or extension of the gear. We see a crew ladder. In flight, this ladder is removed, and we only have this stub of a ladder for crew entry or exit. Okay, we're in the cockpit now of the B-29 Super Fortress Fifi, and you can see we have a lot of windows, and for every window we have four window frames. So even with a lot of windows, the biggest challenge is to be able to see out of this. The bombardier doesn't really have that problem because he has a single flat screen window that he can look out. You can see the Norden bomb site. That bomb site actually has its own history because it was given by Curtis LeMay to Tennessee Ernie Ford, who was uh, an avid uh, CAF member. And uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford gave it to Fifi. So we're very thrilled to have it. I had mentioned earlier the uh, gun site, which is just to the right, and that could be pulled forward in front of the bombardier's position. And from there, he could control the upper and lower turrets, forward turrets. Uh, the bombardier's controls are just to his left. He has uh, a lot of instrumentation and controls of his own. 
Many of you are familiar with the fact that the uh, bombardier in the last few minutes of the flight uh, to target would be controlling the aircraft. It was essentially an autopilot uh, type control where he would be changing the heading, minor changes in heading in order to get right over the target. And then he would hand it back to the pilot. I'm in the aircraft commander's position and uh, we have a uh, instrument panel that in some ways looks normal, but it's you know in the middle of this big windowed area, so it's a little bit unusual in look and feel. Uh, in addition to just the flight instruments, you have a couple of engine instruments. You have manifold pressure and uh, RPM, but that is all of the instrumentation for engines that the uh, pilot has. The co-pilot doesn't even have that. So when we get to the engineer position, we'll talk about everything he does, which is a great deal. So the pilots in this aircraft are basically tasked with flying the aircraft, and that's enough of a challenge. Uh, but they are certainly offloaded from all of the systems and uh, engine operation. We do have throttles, which are used by us for taxiing the aircraft. As I mentioned, we do not have nose wheel steering. So we use split throttles as we need, as well as using brakes. Once we get on the runway and get ready for takeoff, we'll steer with the throttles till we get about 100 miles per hour, maybe a little less than that, and then we'll make a call, engineer's throttle set max power. From then on, right down until we're taxiing the aircraft again, we do not normally touch the throttles. So even through the approach and flare, We'll simply be making call-outs, such as manifold 2.8, manifold 2.6, and down into the flare we'll call ease them off, and the flight engineer will help us into that flare by easing the power off. Uh, it's, it may seem like that division of duties can be complicated, but it actually works very well. We have good crews, good crew coordination, and uh, works very well. Here we have uh, the prominent red levers are emergency brakes. The brakes are the only hydraulics on this aircraft. So we have normal uh, hydraulics and emergency hydraulic accumulator for the brakes. In the center console, uh, we have the feather buttons. We have the propeller uh, controls, which are just electric switches. However, 99% uh, of the time we don't use these. They can be used only if the pilot takes control by flipping the switch to pilot and say, I've got the props. Normally, it is set to the engineer position, and the flight engineer, who has the same set of uh, switches, handles the propellers. The landing gear switch is very different from what you would normally see. You'd normally be looking for a wheel. It is nothing but a toggle switch, which has a guard position to keep from raising it inadvertently. So it's all electric gear, and similarly, you have electric flap control, which is just a switch, and it has to be held until the flaps are in the desired position. It does have some really good backup uh, engineering to it. I, I'm impressed with how they've done it. Right next to it is an emergency flap switch, which is guarded and wired, and that simply runs a different motor to the same flap system. 
And uh, if that doesn't work, then we've got a third way to do it electrically and then a fourth way to do it manually. So, well designed. And of course we have a radio stack here for not modern but uh, more useful uh, communications with air traffic control. The co-pilot position is pretty much a, uh, a mirror image of the pilot position. It does have a flat gauge that the pilot doesn't have, uh, but it does not have any engine instruments. All right, and uh, one thing that the co-pilot does have on the floor next to the console is a red lever, which is a backup hydraulic pump. So if you're taxiing and you have a brake failure, uh, and a quick call to the flight engineer to check it and try some more pumps. If that doesn't work, the uh, co-pilot grabs that pump handle and starts pumping. About, uh, I think it was 187 pumps or thereabouts to get, uh, get your pressure up for one system and then another for another 100 and some for the other system. So, um, that's essentially the forward crew positions. Now we can talk about the flight engineer, um, who, by the way, does everything from fuel the aircraft, oil the aircraft, pre-flight it, do the weight and balance, uh, change the cylinders, uh, you know, take care of the oil leaks and all that. He also, during flight, is the busiest man. So uh, you look and appreciate, you look for and appreciate a good flight engineer. Okay, I'm in the uh, flight engineer's position. Uh, I'm personally a flight engineer in a 727 from many years ago, and I thought that was complicated, and I did not have any engines to run. Here, it is much about engines, generators, uh, fuel, and, uh, and basically you're, you're operating the aircraft at the uh, whim of the pilots during the entire flight. Um, start out on the left side, you have magnetos, You've got the emergency hydraulic filler valve. You've got uh, fire extinguishers for the two bottles that are in the Bombay. You can blow them both to either engine. You've got some auxiliary controls over here for dropping the nose gear in an emergency and for the Bombay doors. Uh, starting at the top, we have some override circuit breakers for the landing gear, uh, Bombay door compressors, hydraulic uh, indicators, and emergency lights and just some emergency warning lights uh, for the engines. On this side, uh, we've got car air temperatures, cylinder head temperatures, and you can see the dual use gauges, so one, two, three, and four, uh, oil temperatures, torque pressure, oil pressure, and fuel quantity. Down the next row, you've got call flap positions, uh, RPM, manifold pressure, fuel pressure, and we'll go to the next. Here we have the voltage for the auxiliary uh, DC system, uh, induction temperature. We have a what we call a sync tack that allows us to synchronize the propellers, a clock of course, uh, an altimeter, an airspeed, fuel flow for one, two, three, and four. On the far left, uh, we don't use this gauge, we've got a Hobbs meter of course, uh, at the very top, I should say, we have an auxiliary power unit control panel. Even though it's operated in the back, we can see the warning horn, uh, hear the warning horn, see a light if we have a problem. Uh, we have the uh, chip detector lights, forward and aft on each engine. Uh, 
and then we'll take a look at the the major system here for electrics uh, first of all you've got some switches for intercom and avionics bus and you have uh, six generators on the engines plus one on the putt-putt or APU so you've got a load meter for each of these and for the engine driven generators uh, you have an in-op light so the outboards have an uh, outboard engines one and four have outboard and inboard generators and inboard and outboard generators everything on this airplane is electric except the brakes which are hydraulic so it does take a lot of generators particularly in wartime when you are running the gun turrets the lower portion of this is called the switch panel we can start on the right with the prop uh, switches these can be gang barred or you use individual switches you have uh, the hydraulic pump and uh, an override pump switch uh, you've got pitot heat switches boost pumps uh, starter circuit breakers the battery master and the inverter switches you can see that you've got generator switches to turn on or off any generator you have fuel shutoff valves which normally we won't shut off We've got engine primers engine starters and we also have pre-oilers and we have some things that are inoperative such as the intercooler doors we no longer have intercoolers installed because we don't have the turbochargers installed all right uh, on the side here we have cow flaps and oil cooler doors again they can be gang barred or individual switches when we get into the flight engineer controls we'll start over on the right side where we have a locking lever for the mixtures there's two things that are unusual about the mixtures the first is and any other engine controls is they are backwards from what you would normally expect you normally expect one two three four but looking at the aircraft from this orientation one is over there two is there three is here and four is there the second thing that's an oddity is that when mixtures are at idle cutoff they're all the way up whereas when throttles are full power they are all the way up so that's a backwards orientation I'm not sure the reason for it and to me it's pretty confusing uh, so then we have throttles one two three and four and we have a number of controls over here for air, air valves cabin pressurization and so on that are not used anymore okay we do use the air valves to open up some of the vents uh, but the other pressurization uh, and so on are not used all right so again uh, the flight engineer handles this during flight and before flight he's doing uh, the pre-flight inspection he's doing the weight and balance he's doing the fueling oiling the engines and after the flight he's also an AMP and he's out there fixing the oil leak or uh, putting on a new pump or whatever needs to be done so he is a tremendously uh, important element in our crew so now we're in the uh, aft uh, portion of the cockpit still a pressurized area a few things of interest here we have a very pistol for shooting flares it's permanently installed and you just put a cartridge in and, and boom it could be used for uh, upon landing perhaps to indicate you have wounded crew on board if you don't have radio communications or if you were a lead ship in a formation or any number of purposes where you had radio silence could shoot a colored flare uh, just to the left of that is our our hydraulic reservoir 
It only holds uh, three gallons max, and the hydraulic package is all underneath the floor. It's a self-contained unit with an electric motor and accumulator. We have a couple of inverters that are used uh, for fuel flow switches and some or fuel flow gauges and a few of the uh, flight instruments. We can see the pressurized door that goes to the forward bomb bay, which we normally operate uh, with it closed during flight, but we can open it if we're unpressurized. We have the tunnel we saw when we were in the rear of the aircraft looking forward allows the crews to go from the pressurized cockpit to the pressurized crew compartment in the back. And on the upper portion, we have a bubble, which was used by the navigator for taking his sun shots and star shots. Not in the most convenient position, but it works. And that's also can be used as an emergency exit. Continuing around to the left, we have a fabulous uh, radio operator's position. Uh, this has been worked on by our colleagues, friends, uh, people that are in our squadron um, have this operational. And uh, when we have the opportunity to have a radio operator with us, on, perhaps on a transition flight, uh, they'll be tuning up and uh, lighting up America. They get a lot of, lot of QSLs from around the U.S. Uh, it's dedicated uh, to Red Irwin, who was a radio operator, uh, that was severely injured when he grabbed a hold of a flare that had fallen and was burning and managed to throw it out of the aircraft and save the crew. And his family was here for a dedication of that uh, just a few years ago and uh, it very much deserved. He was a Medal of Honor winner. He did survive and uh, lived to uh, ripe old age, has a wonderful family. Um, as we come around the other direction, we'll have the navigator's table, navigator's position. You can see we have a map here which is of Japan, and our point of pride here is that it was autographed by Dutch Van Kirk, just very recently passed away. He was a navigator on the Enola Gay, and uh, we're very proud to have had him along. Got some photographs of him in this aircraft. Uh, you can see some of his the normal uh, flight instruments he would have at that position. Another thing I'll point out as we look around the rear portion of the cockpit, it looks very spacious, but uh, in, in the wartime, this being the upper turret would actually come down a couple of feet for all the ammunition and the mechanism, as well as the lower forward turret would rise up. So this entire area would be filled with equipment. So the radio operator would just be pinched in the corner and to get around to the tunnel would be a very tight fit. As in all these wartime aircraft, once you have the oxygen bottles for standby, the uh, ammunition belts, life vests, flak jackets, and so on, uh, it's, it's a very tight fit indeed. I were in the aft crew compartment of the B-29 and uh, this is the gunner's compartment had uh, the primary flight control, as you can see from this seat. He sits up on a barber chair, has the uh, bubble and gun grips. And these are basically allowing him to move, move this uh, gun sight around, see 360 degrees, 
and he can control all of the guns or some of the guns as necessary and if he feels that one of his side gunners has a better shot he can tap them on the shoulder with his foot or however communicate with them they would have a gun sight of their own in the blister allowing them to take control of whichever turrets he gives them access to you can see behind the chair is a tunnel that allows the crews to move back and forth during flight it goes to the cockpit which is the other major pressurized area so we have a pressurized cockpit pressurized tunnel pressurized crew area then another large unpressurized area and then finally the tail gun which is pressurized so that tunnel goes over the forward bomb bay the center wing section and the aft bomb bay all of which are not pressurized all right so the what we use these days these as scanner positions the gentlemen in these positions or ladies uh, will be sitting and watching the engines watching the uh, flaps and gear and basically being our eyes and ears in the back of the aircraft because there's a they're part of the crew they're in the checklist with us responding and uh, announcing what they see we can also see the control cables going back to the rudder and elevator this area where we now have uh, passenger seats during uh, wartime these were bunk areas as well as uh, additional equipment areas you can see from the curvature of the bulkhead both uh, behind the, the uh, gunner seat and here with the hatch they are set up for pressurization you can also see the outflow valves just like on the airline uh, so what you have in this Boeing is similar to what you have in the airliners made by Boeing this is a top turret we have the innards of it removed it would be setting down here considerable distance and uh, you know for ammunition and the mechanism and then there's also a lower turret further back the bottom turret further back and we'll walk uh, to the rear uh, into the unpressurized APU area So now we're in the unpressurized aft area of the B-29. Um, you can see the curvature of the pressurized bulkhead ahead of us. We have an escape hatch here. We have the regular crew entry area, uh, all the control cables. And then to the left, we have the auxiliary power unit, or APU. This was designed to be used extensively uh, during startup, uh, takeoffs and landings. We have some auxiliary batteries that allow us to have this only as a standby device. And of course we have the controls for it. If we look around far to the left, you'll see the fuel tank for the APU and continuing back ammunition boxes and so on for the tail gunner. And that goes all the way back to the tail gun position. He has uh, sealed doors that allow him to be in a pressurized area of his own.
but he is, like in all tail gunners, uh, rather remote. As you come see us on tour, ride with us, or perhaps just watch this walk around video, I hope that you'll keep in mind that it takes a great deal to keep this aircraft operational. Uh, it's over $10,000 per hour uh, in, in funding, and all of our money comes from tours and ride flights. Come see us on airpowertour.org for our latest schedule. We're in, on tour from February through October each year all around the U.S. And if you would like to join us as a member of our squadron, CAFB29B24.org uh, is our website. Above all, uh, remember the men who flew these aircraft during the war and their sacrifices. Thank you. Well, everybody, that was part two of our B-29 Super Fortress episode. That concludes our discussion on this wonderful uh, warbird. Uh, everybody, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure to uh, follow me on Instagram, uh, Brandon Piscopo, or, or wait, Aviation Avenue Pod, sorry. Uh, make Become a patron at patreon.com slash aviationavenuepodcast. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Braden Piscopo, and we will see you guys next week here on the Aviation Avenue Podcast. So long for now, everyone.